Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are Semantic Threat Researchers Orla Cox, Stephen Doherty, Bridget O'Gorman and Candid West. This week we're going to do something a little different because it's our last podcast of 2018. We're going to take a look back at the five biggest cybersecurity stories of 2018. So, without further ado, let's get going on our cybersecurity Christmas countdown. At number five, we have election security. The midterm elections took place in the US in November, and after what happened during the 2016 presidential election, there was a sense of trepidation about whether we'd see something similar happen this time around. Yes, there certainly was. And that's because uh, cyber attacks had a major impact on the 2016 election, uh, both on the campaign itself and on the post-election fallout, which is really continuing to this day. So to recap on what happened in 2016, it all kicked off in March of that year when an espionage group uh, that's usually known as APT28 sent some spear phishing emails to a range of targets, including members of the Democratic National Committee. And uh, the emails were designed to trick the recipients into supposedly changing their email passwords, uh, but they were directed to a fake web page to do that. And then APT28 was able to steal their credentials and then use them to gain access to the DNC network, install malware, move across the network and steal data, including a big trove of emails. Um, So things then really escalated in July of that year when WikiLeaks released nearly 20,000 DNC emails and the leak, as we all know, became a major talking point in the election campaign. So if that wasn't enough, while all of this was going on, there was thousands of Twitter accounts controlled by a Russia-based uh, internet, the Russia-based Internet Research Agency, mounting an intense propaganda campaign designed to influence public opinion in the run-up to the election. Right, so it's not surprising then that people were worried about this happening again. No, not at all. And in the months before the election, I think everyone was in a state of high alert from the political parties themselves to law enforcement to cybersecurity companies like ourselves. And it led uh, us to undertake a number of initiatives such as offering our Project Dolphin service for free to candidates, election officials or other organisations involved in the election. Um, So what's Project Dolphin? Well, it's uh, a lot of the attacks we saw in 2016 relied on fake phishing domains designed to look like their real counterparts, like those fake password changing web pages uh, that we mentioned earlier. Um, So if you give any URLs you want monitored by Dolphin, uh, it will identify and flag any suspicious URLs it finds that seem to be attempting to spoof your legit URLs. And it wasn't just us, Microsoft uh, said that they blocked some fake Microsoft domains it believed were going to be used for phishing attacks against three candidates. Okay, and so, I mean, when we say it was a success story, there weren't really any big attacks this time around, were there? Yeah, I mean, I think greater awareness and preparedness certainly would have made it harder for any attacker to perform attacks. But at the same time, you can't be too complacent. Um, It's also possible that attacking the midterms wasn't a priority for attackers. For example, we did our own research on APT28 this year and we found that they were still active, but they'd gone back to doing the type of attacks they were previously known for, namely spying on governments and military targets in in Europe and, and North America. However, one of the most interesting developments in the area of election security is that during 
2018, we actually learned a whole lot more about what happened in 2016. So, for example, in July of this year, the US Justice Department indicted 12 Russian agents who it said were allegedly responsible for the DNC attacks. And that indictment gives a really detailed picture of how these attacks took place, from the sending of the emails, how they were registering the phishing domains, to the malware that they used once they broke into the network. And it wasn't just that, because we also learned an awful lot more about the propaganda element of the campaign, because earlier this year, Twitter released an archive of all the known tweets uh, that were associated with the aforementioned Internet Research Agency. And there was more than like 300 gigabytes of data comprising of millions of tweets that anyone can download and pour through. And, And what's fascinating about this is not only the sheer scale of the operation, but how much it was focused on stirring up feelings on both sides of the political spectrum in the States. I think everyone assumes it was directed at getting people to vote for Donald Trump, but it was a lot more subtle than that. And they seem to want to create discord by pushing people more towards extreme positions on either side. So uh, enough about elections, because I think it's time to move on to our next item on the list, number four on our countdown. And this concerns something that we discovered ourselves here in Semantic, a previously unknown cyber espionage group that we call Gallmaker. We've got Stephen Doherty here, who's going to talk to us about it. So maybe he'll first um, tell us about who Gallmaker are and what they've been doing. Hey, yeah, sure. Um, well, at the time, Gallmaker was a previously unknown targeted attack group. so. Uh, the team I'm involved in uh, basically works on targeted attacks and tries to discover those that are known and those that are unknown. Um, and I, we looked at this group and we could see activity started uh, maybe as early as December of 2017. Um, Gallmaker themselves were observed tar- targeting government, military and defence sectors. Uh, targets included several o- overseas embassies of an Eastern European country, uh, a Middle Eastern military organisation and then a military Eastern our Middle Eastern defence contractor. Um, the activity to us bared all the hallmarks of a cyber espionage campaign. Uh, we don't believe it was financially motivated. Um, and given the target and goal maker are likely involved in uh, military intelligence gathering operations. Um, I think an interesting point of note for us is that goal maker don't use conventional malware in their attacks. So most of the groups that we look at um, have their own uh, custom malware, uh, Gallmaker are making a clear effort to kind of avoid uh, using specific malware in their attacks. Um, we call this kind of uh, behavior like living off the land, uh, I guess, where an attacker uses pre existing tools and applications which are considered clean, uh, but they use them for malicious purposes. So think Office, PowerShell, PS Exec, system utilities. So. These could be used by like a system administrator, but they could also be used by an attacker uh, in their operations. Okay, so if Goldmaker uses no malware, how exactly do the attacks work? How can they achieve so much without it? Um, it it's mainly because uh, Goldmaker can uh, use existing technologies to then um, basically perform malicious actions on a machine. So. Uh, for instance, like a Goalmaker attack uh, starts with a seemingly benign Office lore document. Uh, the lore documents are typically written uh, containing military or diplomatic themes. Uh, and we've seen documents written in both English and Cyrillic languages. Um, so we believe these documents are then sent in targeted attack emails, highly targeted emails. Um, and then once an unsuspecting vi- victim opens the document, 
um, they are presenting with a warning to say enable content um, in order to view it properly. Um, if the user agrees, the attacks then leverage Microsoft Office Dynamic Data Exchange, other not, otherwise known as DDE, uh, protocol to remotely execute commands in memory and provide the attackers with remote access to the target network. Um, and we believe the group uses this technique because it minimizes the initial footprint that Goalmaker uh, have on the network. Um, then the group can install additional tools to expand their capabilities uh, and enable persistence. Uh, some of the tools we've seen them install is a, a scheduled task uh, used to uh, uh, run PowerShell scripts and tasks on a regular basis. Um, they've also uh, been seen installing a reverse TCP payload from Metasploit, again providing remote access to the attackers. Uh, we've seen them also install a legitimate version of WinZip. Um, we believe the attackers are using this to archive data, uh, presumably before exfiltration. Um, and then we've also seen them use a publicly available library uh, to help them use PowerShell scripts to work with uh, Metasploit exploits. Um, and then the, the group are kind of taking a bit more care in terms of their operations. So uh, all this kind of uh, activity is occurring and then uh, we've seen them uh, securely delete tools after their use. So like when they no longer need them, uh, they'll delete them off the network as well again. The idea is to keep their footprint to a minimum. Okay, so it's an entire chain of, you know, legit or dual-use tools that they manage to string together in order to put it to malicious purposes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So one obvious question is, though, I mean, lots of people think, "Oh, semantic, your job is detecting malware." If they don't use malware, how did we uncover their campaigns? Um, yeah, it's a good question as well. Um, well I think Goalmaker may have continued to operate under the radar. Uh, was enough for Semantic's targeted attack ana analytics technology, uh, otherwise known as TAA. So TAA applies the work of Semantic's leading security analysts with artif artificial <coughs> intelligence and machine learning to help detect the undetectable. Um, this technology is available in Semantic's Advanced Threat Protection product, otherwise known as ATP. Um, and TAA has detected uh, many, many secured security incidents at thousands of organizations since its inception. Um, I think the main advantage of TAA, it automates what otherwise takes many hours of analyst time uh, working through incidents. And in this instance in particular with Goalmaker, uh, TAA detected a suspicious PowerShell command, uh, which led to the, the discovery of multiple campaigns carried out by a previously unknown actor. Yeah, okay. So it's, I mean, PowerShell in itself is not suspicious and there's, you know, multiple occasions where it's, uh, it, it's, its use is legit, but what TA does is spot, the, I suppose, the malicious use of, of, of tools like PowerShell. Exactly. Yeah. It helps you distinguish between the administrator or the pen tester or the adversary. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Um, now, let's move on to number three on our cybersecurity countdown. Um, while the last two items involve cyber espionage, this one is right out of the world of cybercrime. Form jacking uh, was one of the biggest trends we saw come into prominence uh, this year, and Bridget has written quite a bit at this stage about this threat, so maybe you can tell us more about it. Yeah, sure. I've also discussed form jacking uh, on this podcast a couple of times too, as any of our regular listeners uh, would know. 
So I suppose in Kit, for anyone who maybe hasn't heard us talk about it before, and um, we should probably define what it is we're talking about. So form jacking is a term that uh, we use here in Symantec to describe the use of malicious JavaScript code to steal um, payment card details and other information, personal information from the payment forms on the checkout web pages of e-commerce sites. So, you know, hotel booking sites, you know, airplane or, you know, flight booking sites, online shopping sites, all those kind of things. Um, so it's a topic that probably came to a very wide attention um, to kind of average members of the public uh, this year around the summertime, at around the end of June, um, due to the breach of Ticketmaster's um, UK website as well as several of its international sites. And this is probably, I suppose, the first um, very high-profile form jacking attack this year that gained really wide attention and brought a lot of attention to the whole area of form jacking. So in that incident... The attackers used a software supply chain attack to get onto Ticketmaster's website and carry out the attack that saw them steal um, customers' payment card information. And software supply chain attacks are something we've seen used in other form jacking attacks too. So it seems to be a tactic that is being leveraged by um, the cyber criminals who are you know, going after um, these payment card details. And in the Ticketmaster case, the attackers injected malicious JavaScript code onto Ticketmaster's website to steal the payment card details after they compromised a chatbot from a tech firm called Inventa that was used on Ticketmaster's websites for customer support. Um, and the customers were warned as well. To, like the, the code was on the web, potentially on the website for quite some time and may have been on some of the websites for more than a year. Um, so it was quite a persistent kind of attack. And while the attack on Ticketmaster was, as I said, one of the first high-profile attacks that we saw this year, it wasn't the only one. A few months later, in September, uh, British Airways announced that its website too had been a victim of form jacking, with potentially hundreds of thousands of customers affected there. And other well-known names such as Newegg and um, the contact lens seller Vision Direct were also recently found to be victims of form jacking as well. Okay, so that's the victims. do we know uh, much now about who's responsible for these attacks? Yeah, well, an entity called Magecart um, is believed to be responsible for a lot of these attacks, um, including those on Ticketmaster, British Airways and Vision Direct. So back um, when we kind of first, people first started looking into this form jacking threat, Magecart was originally believed to be just one group. But subsequent research has kind of found that it actually seems to be an entity that's made up of multiple groups who are all carrying out more or less the same kind of activity and they're not necessarily cooperating with each other. In fact, some of the groups are found, we have been seen to be outright sabotaging each other. Um, one group, for instance, has its code configured so that if it detects another form jacking threat on a server that it's um, infected, it will intercept the data that the other group is collecting, will alter the payment card number and so render the data totally useless. And then it will also make the other group look bad if they then try and sell this useless data um, on the dark web. So it kind of is a double whammy kind of sabotage in that way. And so there's no honour amongst thieves, um, amongst the form jacking uh, criminals, it seems. And as you said, it's almost six months now um, since form jacking came to kind of wide notice after the Ticketmaster breach. And it doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. So it must be kind of rendering some success for these cyber criminals. In the past three months alone, in September, October and November, um, Symantec's technology has blocked more than 1 million form jacking attempts on more than 10,000 unique websites. 
And while the impacted websites that make headlines, you know, are the household names like that we mentioned above, many of the websites that we have seen targeted in our own telemetry are, you know, smaller businesses. They're not necessarily household names and they kind of operate in all different sectors and some of them are very localized in that. So it's kind of is a threat that affects, you know, all businesses from kind of smaller businesses to the really huge multinationals. And it is something we've seen trending upwards just in the last, you know, few weeks as we obviously hit the peak of the holiday shopping season. So it's likely we'll probably, you know, see some more of form jacking continuing on into 2019. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the supply chain attacks there. That's something we saw a big increase in last year. And I, I think they're they're also up again this year. So yeah. uh, they're really kind of piggybacking on that trend as well and making hard. the most of that. Yeah. Okay, um, I think it's time to move on to number two on our list. And this story involves a pair of vulnerabilities known as Meltdown and Spectre, both of which managed to cause a fair amount of panic during 2018. And we've got Orla here to tell us more. Yeah, so this was actually an interesting start of the year. Um, I think it was around January that these emerged and um, interest for various reasons. And just generally, we don't really talk much about vulnerabilities these days when it comes to security um like they used to be kind of the the bedrock of attacks um a number of years ago um but less and less so obviously we have anomalies like eternal blue um in in 2017 but in general we are seeing a a decline in in vulnerabilities in say applications and, and operating systems and that's for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, you just have generally better coding practices now, secure coding practices. So they're um, these kind of easy to find vulnerabilities just aren't there anymore. Um, and then obviously there's a lot of bug bounty programs as well out there, which means that um, you're finding vulnerabilities that are being found by researchers or, or attackers are coming clean on them rather than them actually being used in attacks. Um, so, so that kind of area of, of vulnerability, you know, has really dropped off. But what it's meant that is that researchers are now, and possibly attackers as well, are looking elsewhere then for vulnerability. So not looking at the application or operating operate system level, they're going, you know, a step lower. And what we're finding is that they're um, looking for weaknesses in, uh, in processors, like chip level and um, vulnerabilities. And uh, they're finding issues really in the whole architecture around um, processors. And so this is really something that we'd seen before. Um, so for you know this to come out this year was was something very new. Uh, I think is why we feel it's significant for, for this year. Um, in terms of vulnerabilities themselves, so as mentioned, the chip level vulnerabilities, and what they do is they exploit um, a process um, which is known as speculative execution, um, and it's basically in there to allow a process to operate more efficiently. Um, and it's really kind of a fundamental part of how processors work. And uh, the exploits, the meltdown inspector then would allow, like if you successfully exploited them, you would gain access then to areas of memory then that you shouldn't have access to basically. Uh, and what that would allow you to do if you successfully exploit them then, you'd be able to then steal data uh, from memory. Um, I was interested, like, so they stood out, you know, they were they were new, pretty unique, but then they weren't the only vulnerabilities at that level that were discovered. Later on, then we did a number of others, things like speculative store bypass and, and foreshadow. Um, and actually, these were uh, exploiting really um, 
a change that was made to processes to protect the whole area of speculative execution uh, and in fact um, it made things even worse you know so actually then by protecting one process they were actually then exposing uh, another weakness and and basically opening up other channels of attacks um, and so I think what this whole thing does is it kind of show a more general problem in how chips are designed and so based on this then it's possible that there are other you know more underlying fundamental issues that are there that could be then uncovered. Yeah as you said there was a kind of a drip feed of, of new discoveries being made after the initial announcement about Meltdown Inspector. Um, have we actually seen uh, these exploits being used in attacks yet? Uh, no, not yet. Um, there's probably a few reasons uh, for that. Um, of course, well, obviously they've been patched, so patches have been put in place. And then also, you know, they're not trivial vulnerabilities to exploit. They're, they're not particularly easy. It would require a bit of skill, you know, so they're not something that really you're going to see kind of mainstream widespread usage of. Um, so no, for, for now that we haven't seen them actually exploited in the wild. Yeah. So. For users, then, what are the implications of their discovery? Um, you know, as mentioned already, you know, it's exposing kind of maybe possibly a fundamental issue with how uh, processes are designed. Um, but I think what stood out to me was um, about how these uh, exploits could potentially leave cloud services in particular exposed. Um, because if you think about how cloud systems are set up, um, what you would typically have is maybe a number of cloud instances uh, on a single system. Uh, and these are then uh, running off, then, you know, they might have their own virtual processor, but fundamentally they're running off their, their own a single processor, physical processor, and then sharing pools of memory. Um, and so if you actually exploit these vulnerabilities, um, what you potentially have then is access to then the, the memory that's been used by all of these cloud instances. So you could potentially then be able to steal data then from all of those cloud instances on that single system. Um, so, you know, it showed that by going lower down, you're actually then giving yourself greater access then to that system. Um, so, you know, it's something to bear in mind for cloud users. And it's also important then to consider, you know, if you are a user of cloud systems, be, you know, looking at your cloud provider, making sure that they are um, putting these patches in places. And, you know, it's a good way to check you know, how responsive your cloud provider is to security issues by looking at how quickly they were able to put patches in place for these. So um, so it's definitely, you know, one to watch. It's a, it's a new area of concern, you know, potentially now for cloud users. And I think that would be the, the biggest takeaway I'll take right now. Okay, thank you, Orla. And that just leaves us with one more story. So what did we think was the number one cybersecurity story of the year? Well, for us, it was VPN filter. It was hugely significant because it represents the next generation of Internet of Things threats. And we've got Candid here who can tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, so in May this year, the Cisco Talus team published their research on the VPN filter botnet, and then we published ours as well. And the first glance, it could have been mistaken for yet another IoT router botnet that managed to infect half a million devices. But the focus was on infecting routers, and the list of affected devices is actually quite long, with popular names such as Linksys, Microtik, Netgear, Huawei, and more and more. 
So far, there were no indications that the attackers used any new zero-day exploits to compromise the routers. So most likely, they just used the weak default credentials and some known available exploits to compromise those devices. Just like we have seen with many, many different uh, other malware campaigns before. The whole VPN filter threat on its own is composed out of different modules, which are kind of wrapped inside a framework. And this is kind of the first indication that this is not your regular IoT threat. The threat uses three stages or layers for its operation. And at the first stage, it's kind of the foot in the door, which will then contact the command and control server to download further payload uh, and install all the different modules. All the communication is done over SSL encrypted communication, and the IP of the command and control server is actually hidden inside the metadata of an image, which is downloaded from a public photo sharing site. And this is also the stage where the threat adds its uh, persistence mechanism, so that at a reboot will actually not clean the device. VPN filter was not the first IoT threat to use persistence. Uh, for example, the Kitan bot had a simple persistence method already back in 2016. But it's still rare that we see persistence with IoT malware today. And of course, having a persistence method makes it even harder to protect your device from VPN filter. As IoT devices, such as a router, are usually not specifically protected and are therefore quite difficult to clean up afterwards. The second stage then contained the actual payload. And as I said before, there were many different modules available. And the last stage, the third one, adds something like a plugin or extension for the modules of stage two. So extending their capabilities. For example, there was one plugin that would enable any of the stage two modules to use the Tor network for its communication. So. That definitely is quite sophisticated and it's not your normal DDoS uh, Mirai type botnet. What kind of payload did we actually see uh, which made the VPN filter botnet so special? Yeah, so one of the main purposes of VPN filters seemed to be information gathering, so espionage kind of type. Uh, there is a module that can sniff all the network traffic and extract any interesting credentials which are transmitted in clear text, like for example, for logins to website. And to increase the chances of seeing some passwords on encrypted flyby, there is actually a module to strip the SSL and downgrade any HTTPS connection just down to use the HTTP instead. Uh, in addition to that, the threat can monitor for the Modbus SCADA protocol, which is used with a lot of industrial control systems. And again, that's kind of an indication that this attacker did actually have some very special interest. Uh, the threat is per se actually quite interested in its environment. So there are multiple modules to scan the local network for other devices and scan for open ports and so on. Uh, it can also modify the network traffic that it sees. Uh, for example, it could inject malicious code, which is then delivered to the computer behind the router. So this would allow the attacker to compromise devices inside the local network and this Pivoting behavior is actually something we don't see every day with IoT malware either. 
And on top of all that, there's another possible usage for that many compromised devices, right? I mean, half a million. Um, similar as to what we have seen earlier this year with the Inception Framework Group, the VPN filter module can enable a SOX5 proxy on the compromised device. And this would then allow to use the device as a kind of a distributed proxy network to hide further attacks. And of course, this makes it very difficult to find the origin of an attack or attribute it afterwards. And that's not even all. Furthermore, VPN filter can actually add IP tables to block certain communications to certain uh, IP addresses, like, for example, for certain secure messaging applications. So that probably the user might revert to other means of communication, which in turn might be interceptable. And if that's not good enough, well, the attackers could even run any shell command that they would need to. Okay, that's quite an arsenal of modules there. Uh, take some time to list them all. It seems like they have all their angles covered. Yeah, it's definitely a lot. And that's not even all. Um, probably in an attempt to clean up afterwards any evidence or so, VPN filter can brick a device by overriding critical portions of the device and then rebooting it, making the device, of course, unusable. And this would result in quite a disruption if multiple routers at the company are bricked at the same time, right? Or if any critical servers rely on the internet connection to be up and they're behind such a router. Fortunately, we did not see any large disruption attack uh, being carried out by the VPN filter group. And there has also been a massive takedown operation together with law enforcement against the command control servers disrupting the botnet. Okay, so uh, what are the takeaway points here? Like, let's uh, maybe summarize why we think this is the most uh, important cybersecurity uh, incident of the year. Well, all of these facts that I just mentioned are a very good indication that the group behind the threat is very skilled and sophisticated. There's even some code similarity to the RC4 routine, which was used in the Black Energy malware. And Black Energy was used in attacks against the critical infrastructure of the Ukraine in the past. And even without this, it's a very good indication that targeted attack groups are also interested in IoT devices, especially, of course, routers, uh, because they can be the first target in order to breach the network, steal information, or even sabotage industrial control systems. So it's kind of the next area of IoT threats. And I think that we will see more and more of those targeted attack groups materialize on IoT devices as an additional attack vector for their arsenal. So I guess to sum, summarize it up, um, attacks on IoT devices are more than just your regular DDoS attack or crypto mining threat. And we will definitely keep us uh, busy in 2019. Okay, that wraps up our year-end special. If you've been enjoying the podcast, uh, don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing out on all the action. You can also follow us on Twitter at ThreatIntel or Medium at medium.com forward slash threat hyphen intel. If you'd like to read our latest research, check out our blog, which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. We're going to take a two-week break for the holidays, but we'll be back again on January 10th when we'll be once again looking at what's going on in the world of cybersecurity. Until then, thank you and goodbye.